This is Family Office Intel at Dentons, the place where we discuss developments currently shaping the industry and actual ideas for advisors, executives, and families. We share uncommon knowledge from insiders for the Modern Family Office. I'm Edward Marshall, Global Head of Family Office here at the firm. Today's discussion centers on the world of blockchain. We'll cover several areas, including the current state uh, of the space and what the future holds, uh, use cases, and what to expect in this space, uh, some interesting conversations around art and digital art as well. And we'll talk about the changing attitudes of policymakers and, and some tax considerations and discuss investable opportunities and strategies in this space. We have a fantastic and uh, very experienced uh, group joining us for our discussion today. But let me start with some discussions or introductions, I should say. Uh, first up is John Crane. John's the founder and CEO of SuperRare. Uh, prior to SuperRare, he led product for consensus spoke block apps and worked with Fortune 500 companies uh, exploring the use cases for smart contracts and leveraging open data. Before going down the uh, crypto uh, rabbit hole, he, he worked in advertising and in the digital marketing space uh, for Digitas North America. My other guest today is Li Chuan Sue, he's a senior partner at Denton's Rodic. It's our firm's Singapore office. His practice encompasses corporate finance, M&A, blockchain, uh, and many different areas as well. He's been involved in fundraising projects involving startups, uh, IPO and post-IPO companies, uh, including traditional debt or equities to security and non-security tokens. Uh, he also assists in investment in M&A transactions across Asia-Pacific Europe and beyond. So let's jump into our questions. John, start with you. How did you get your start in the in the blockchain space? Yeah, so I got my start um, actually through going to meetups. So I was uh, in New York and I discovered the New York Bitcoin meetup. I had and I, I was actually in an econ class in 2008, which kind of like sparked my interest in finance more broadly. Uh, so when I learned about Bitcoin, um, just kind of got fascinated this idea of, you know, like a math based monetary system. And yeah, just kind of like tumbled down the rabbit hole learning about Ethereum. And uh, but yeah, all started through uh, just going to a meetup on a whim. Excellent. And uh, Li Xuan, how about yourself? What drew you to the space? Yeah, it was, it was started in about 2017. Uh, we were first approached by a client who was um, basically, uh, he had a startup that was uh, first funded by the uh, government agency. Uh, they were lo looking at developing a crypto debit card, basically a card that would link cryptocurrencies and try to and fiat currencies as well and allow you to spend that, you know, uh, your crypto at any, you know, a cafe or restaurant or a grocery store. So uh, they were looking at funding and uh, doing it via a an, uh, an, uh, token sale. And we were quite intrigued because it's the first time I mean, as a securities lawyer that uh, this this idea was, uh, was was brought up to us. So we explored that uh, within the realm of the existing laws in Singapore. Um, you know, we're trying to first understand what it was and obviously whether it fit within the securities laws of Singapore or any other relevant laws. Um, that was quite interesting and became quite a big fundraising event. I mean, they, they uh, did quite well, I think, in their first uh, uh, public 
the first round of the public uh, sale, they raised about eighty million dollars worth of Ethereum, and and you know the price of Ethereum went up very quickly after that, about um, January or February of uh, twenty eighteen. So they probably made multiples of that. Yeah, I mean, that was how we got started, and then we started to we get approached by you know uh, people in the industry who heard about what you did, and uh, just we started doing more and more token sales. Um, that was quite an interesting period uh, for a while. Sure. Well, thank you. Well, listen, I think John, I assume most of our listeners have heard you know the terms that are surrounding the block space, uh, blockchain space, and you know whether it's distributed ledgers, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin. Ethereum, decentralization, NFTs, all these different areas. When you're talking uh, to people about blockchain, what's co- what are some of those most common misconceptions that you hear about what blockchain is and what it actually has the capability to do? Sure. Um, so, you know, I think often when you're talking about blockchain, people immediately jump to, you know, Bitcoin. That's like what people are most familiar with. And... So I think, again, it's, you know, it's much more broad than that, right? Like uh, Bitcoin is an example of using a blockchain for a very successful uh, kind of specific application. Um, But they're really a lot more broad. You know, there's uh, the smart contract platforms as well. Um, So those are like, you know, Ethereum kind of like being in the forefront there. But there's some other interesting ones such as, you know, Polkadot. And um, yeah, I think... You know, really, it can do a lot more than people think. I think we're seeing right now, especially with the growth in uh, the smart contract space, um, you know, really blockchains are shared databases and they can do, you know, basically anything else that a regular database can do. There's just very specific sort of, uh, you know, ways the database gets updated. Um, So I think often it's people just kind of like, misunderstand the scope of what you could actually do with a blockchain. Thanks, John. And Lichuan, you know, John talked a little bit about some of these practical and, you know, potential applications. Um, Some of them seem quite practical, some of them a little bit more theoretical in nature. What are some of the most common use cases that you're seeing entrepreneurs and others look at today versus where you were four or five years ago uh, in this space? Yeah, definitely. Um, it has moved quite a bit since we first looked at it. Um, initially, quite a lot of the technology was um, uh, used, um, I think rightly so, uh, as for ledger technology, uh, for uh, use cases which required ledger, for instance, looking at title, looking at, uh, um, you know, uh, ensuring uh, basically a whole chain and, and transaction that where um, people are concerned about genuine genuity or genuineness of certain things. And that technology allowed um, sort of a, a, a platform, a way in which people can trust, uh, trust that whatever has been done or passed on from previously would have been temper-proof. So that was a, a very interesting case. We've had seen cases where, you know, um, uh, 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 blockchain was used for ensuring that, uh, you know, goods uh, were brought from sustainable sources uh, for agriculture, for um, even uh, cattle, things like that, which allow uh, for um, basically unlocking of value of cattle. And what they do is that they basically ensure that you're buying from a sustainable source 
this source is really genuine and then and so we've seen cases like that and it's developed however along the way um, we've seen more and more uh, 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 cases of moving into finance and I think uh, even to today for instance we see a lot of uh, people coming up with uh, the DeFi for instance decentralized finance uh, we also see uh, it being used in uh, artwork and other precious uh, commodities uh, and how it can uh, therefore allow uh, for a fractionalization of title and fractionalization of assets. Um, so that, that was something we didn't see that much uh, some years back, but we see more and more of. Yeah, and the, 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 the use cases are quite endless. And we see it used, for instance, even in government sectors. So just to give an example, in Singapore, um, uh, we have a project called uh, Project Ubin. Uh, which is uh, by the uh, set up by the Central Bank of Singapore. Uh, they've come up with use of uh, a blockchain technology to allow for payments and settlements amongst all the major financial institutions in Singapore. At the same time, uh, they also have a project where, uh, for instance, educational institutions, you know, uh, are concerned about how their certificates are forged. So they have uh, basically uh, open cert concept where uh, you can check on the genuine of uh, educational uh, qualifications and certificates in Singapore uh, awarded by the local institution. So it has a, a huge uh, variety of use cases that we've seen so far in Singapore and in fact uh, in, in the Asia Pacific region as well. Have you seen any cases without certainly naming names of, of, of firms where it didn't work out, where it was like a, a good idea but uh, at the time, but maybe that particular use case didn't, didn't pan out to the way it originally intended to be? Yes, uh, Unfortunately, many cases like that. Um, in the original, you know, the early days of uh, token sales, um, fundraising via token sales, a lot of these are startups. So they will have a concept, they will have a white paper, they will think of something that's really very innovative, very interesting, may have a real world usage. Um, uh, unfortunately, though, they may not actually have gone through the whole process of thinking out how to do it and um, it didn't work. One example that I can remember is a token that was used for uh, luxury good purchases and meant to be create a luxury goods, uh, uh, a luxury lifestyle ecosystem. You know, you can use the tokens and this, the blockchain technology to, the, and the smart contracts under, uh, underlying that to allow for you to um, uh, buy um, yachts enjoy your rights, buy cars, buy luxury items. Um, but so far, to be honest, with uh, since that project about two years ago, we haven't really seen much move beyond that. In fact, even the Telegram chat seems to have gone dead. So it's just one example. We've seen many of those. Yeah, John, so one of the things that uh, Li Chuan mentioned was provenance and some of the work that's been uh, gone into the art space, and that certainly uh, bled over into digital art. You know, talk about that world because it's certainly something that, uh, as you mentioned before, an area that's drawn you in uh, quite deeply. You know, a lot of family offices and high net worth individuals collect art today. How is that going to change things uh, in the digital art world as that becomes more popular and more uh, prevalent? Yeah, so I think, you know, looking at digital art kind of historically, it's been a small subset of contemporary art, even though a lot of the really interesting kind of cutting edge art that's being created is entirely digital uh, by nature. So if you think about what's happening with VR and AR, some of the most talented creatives and artists today are working purely in digital mediums. And when you experience the art, that's digital as well. And so 
for me, NFTs are kind of a foundational component of what's going to be an enormous market purely for digital art. Uh, and there's a number of reasons why I think this is going to happen. But one, you know, if you think about just the reduction of friction to get involved in the market, even something as simple as, you know, when you take custody of a piece of art, you have to figure out where you're going to put it. This isn't a consideration that, you know, it's just kind of like if you compare Bitcoin and gold, right? It's like, well, if you get a few bricks of gold, you're going to have to put them somewhere. There's a lot of logistics involved. Um, and it's the same for art, right? Like either you're going to have a, you know, temperature controlled storage facility if you have, you know, a really expensive Andy Warhol or something, or maybe you got a piece of decorative art, you're going to have to figure out where that goes in your house. And this is just not a consideration with digital, right? Your collection can be orders of magnitude larger and it requires no extra work to maintain and manage this collection. Uh, so that's just one thing. And then a, a second component is around provenance and data. So with NFTs, you have essentially, uh, you know, perfect provenance records for works of art. And what I mean by that is, you know, Today, I could have a forgery of a work created, and you, it would be very challenging. You'd have to have like people who are very familiar with the work, like look at it, kind of look into like how do you know how do you know this is actually a forgery? Whereas with an NFT, it's embedded in the token itself. You can immediately see how old the token is, who created it. So there's a lot of these uh, challenges related to provenance in the art world that are just non-existent uh, with NFT art. Um, so I think kind of like those two components that alone really sort of indicate that this is going to be a much larger market than even the existing contemporary art market. Is the notion that this is for um, a younger crowd, a younger interested uh, party in, in this space, what you're seeing out there? Or, or, or is it run the gamut? Because it sounds like it's been in place for, for quite a while. Yeah, so I think... You know, again, not you know, too dissimilar from you know, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. I think it's sort of younger, more experimental people who get involved first. Um, you know, I personally have a bunch of friends who, you know, before they ever traded a stock, traded Bitcoin and have now gotten into other aspects of finance. And so I think it's going to be quite similar with art where it's easy, it's fun, you know, to get involved, right? You can buy an NFT. Uh, you don't have to live in a you know cultural hub like you know New York or Singapore, right? You can live anywhere in the world. You have access to the art. You can participate in the market. Um, and so, I think the you know the early adopters are definitely you know kind of like younger. But uh, we're also seeing lots of development with you know digital displays. Uh, being installed. So people are getting these, you know, Samsung is kind of at the forefront of this and they're one of our investors. They have incredible art displays and they have the technology where it's not backlit. So it looks much more like if you want it to look like a painting, it can kind of look like a painting, but it can also render, uh, you know, video, 3D objects. And so you have the ability to experience um, a lot of these new kind of cutting edge types of art. Where do you see the digital art world kind of going uh, over the next five to 10 years? I mean, you mentioned one of the areas of display 
and that are, are things going to change even more as AR and VR, um, you know, kind of merge into that world as well? Or what, wh- what are you seeing out there? Yeah. So I do think that it kind of starts with display, right? This is some, this is a, a paradigm that people understand, but right? you can have a, you know, a space on your wall that's reserved for displaying your art collection. Um, and this is kind of how this goes mainstream. But then thinking forward, as AR and VR become more ubiquitous, you're just going to see people's collections in different formats, right? If you think about, you know, what's already happening with virtual fashion and kind of like, there's a ton of interesting work being done. I don't know if you saw recently kind of like the Snapchat classes, but it's pretty incredible, these new technologies. And it just makes, if you think about human psychology, they love to collect. Like this isn't something new. This is thousands of years old. And it's also not practical, right? There's no practical reason to collect. Um, Sure, you might be doing it for investment purposes, but deep in our psychology is this desire to collect. And so um, it's not new, it's just changing form. And so I think that's what we're seeing and it's gonna become more and more part of our daily life. John, that's really interesting. I mean, there's Lichuan here and um, um, just uh, just thought that, uh, highlight that about two years ago, interesting. I'm not too sure if that would happen to digital art, but it sure sounds like it. I had a client who, was, um, who came and uh, spoke with me. He's actually a, a pretty famous guy in Japan, one of those, um, um, original um, creators of uh, anime and manga and um, they were looking at and he's you know typical radical um, guy who loves blockchain just because he's a bit anti, anti you know a bit anti-authoritarian you know that's that's how it originally started right and that he was uh, thinking of using blockchain um, to tokenize um, his art and uh, uh, and his anime and the what he wanted to do was first to cater to all the fanboys and you know basically fans of his anime but also thinking of allowing you know there's this thing in, in japan with, or, or even everywhere around the world where you like the anime enough you create your own stories and he was thinking of creating that ecosystem for them to come up with it and then using that to allow other creators and because there are tons of other people who are coming up with their own anime and manga and allow and creating that ecosystem for them to do that kind of art as well and that was actually two years ago and before the whole nft craze came up fortunately he thought it was uh, we discussed and we thought it was a bit too early for his time and now that you mentioned it actually it's a good time to reconnect with this guy but i think it has a huge um, uh, uh, potential for growth uh, as well here, uh, you know, in Asia Pack. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think collectibles are one of the kind of the first use cases for NFTs. It serves it very well. There's a ton of interesting opportunity, but also thinking about NFTs as IP and just kind of evolving our sense of IP. Right? They, you know, when we first, you know started thinking about IP or characters like Mickey Mouse, you know, when Mickey Mouse was developed, computers didn't exist, right? It's like, okay, what does IP look like when you have these massive, you know, fan communities online, where like fan art is a whole category and it's not really connected directly to the IP. And I think there's very interesting opportunities to kind of, to merge fan art and the IP itself, right? Like, I think that's what crypto enables. Like, what if the fans can directly influence the direction the IP goes or what stories are being told? I think there's some really exciting opportunities there. 
So question for both of you, maybe John, you could get your thoughts on, on this is, so you, you think of the regular art world there's, and if somebody wants to display a Picasso or work that they like, and they don't have the, 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 the resources to go buy something like that, they could buy a print. What's the, what's the translation to the digital art world and how, uh, how can, you know, one person who buys a, a piece of work for a hundred dollars and that's the and owns that art versus somebody who finds an image of it and can display it on his screen his or her screen for for much lower H- how do you see that playing out and, and how do you see both artists and collectors thinking about that that situation yeah it's a very interesting question and it's related to like the psychology of this art collecting itself in, in any capacity you know if you look at you know, warhol for example you can find almost his whole body of work online, right? Like if you just want to enjoy a Warhol, it's very easy. To, you could get a high quality reproduction made for, you know, a couple hundred dollars. Um, you could, you know, go on to Google Images, print something out. You could probably pirate something pretty easily. But you're not really participating in the community of people who are, who are art collectors. So you, even though you could enjoy the work, you wouldn't call yourself an art collector and no one would really think of you as an art collector. And so I think it's kind of similar with NFT art collecting, where you know, if you look at the conversation on Twitter, people are you know, obsessed with like, oh, well, I can just right click and save. And so now I have the art. But I think it just begs the question of like, well, what exactly does it mean to collect art? And there's a relationship collectors are developing with the artist, and it's much more nuanced than just kind of, you know, I I know what the Mona Lisa looks like. I could get a Mona Lisa, put it in my in my hallway, um, but you know, no one would ever assert that I owned the Mona Lisa. So I think there's also there's just very interesting um, and nuanced psychology that are is, is also part of the process that I think. You know, it's easy to overlook, but actually runs pretty deep. So, Lichuan, one of the applications of blockchain uh, that often comes up is one around security. You know, both of the security of using the technology to, to provide a, a, a space of security or questioning the security of the, the database technology itself. You know, why do you think there is such a debate and, and where do you fall onto this space for it? Is, is blockchain a, a revolution for security or, or potential vulnerability or, or maybe even both? Well, I, I do find, well, um, uh, I do, I'm going to believe in blockchain and the security of it. Um, and I do think that the technology has a lot of potential to, uh, in terms of um, providing security to, in, uh, uh, to you know, in the in area of, in the use cases, like I mentioned. Um, and the fact that, or generally distributed ledger technology for that matter. Um, I do think that in all the cases where there might have been security issues, I do think uh, very often it's more human error than anything else. And the fact that um, the, the, it, it's so temper-proof, and uh, I, I'm quite a believer in that. I mean, uh, I'm not sure if this is a relevant example, um, but recently, I, I I signed up for a DeFi account, and and I was uh, basically transferring my wallet, some coins and tokens into that, and uh, I had to uh, basically there was some issue that came up with my phone, and I had to delete and uh, reinstall my app, 
and I forgot my security uh, uh, passcode. And there, my uh, tokens, about a thousand USD worth of it, it's all gone, lost in cyberspace forever. And none of the, you know, the platform providers, people who created that could help me. Um, I, I'm quite a, uh, I, I do see exactly, that is exactly the use of, 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 of blockchain and distributed technology, right? Everything's within my hands, my control. And, if, and security fields, I do think most of the time is more human error than anything else. Um, I, I don't know if that, that, that answers your, your, your question. But. No, it does. I mean, it, it, it states towards both, both ends of it. I mean, it's so secure that you can't, you can't even get back to some of those areas that you had mentioned. And um, it, do you see people using blockchain as a realistic way to secure data all itself? And, and, and the other side of it, the coin too, is, is there a potential vulnerability out there as part of the discussion? Yes. So um, in terms of the security of the technology, I do think it's, it's uh, pretty much um, proven. Of course, there are, there are uh, vulnerabilities in, in, the black, uh, in, the, in the system and the, the platform underlying it. I'm not a technology expert, but I have seen um, basically conceptually how things, uh, depending on what kind of system, for instance, is it a proof of stake? Is it a proof of, you know, proof of work? And there are vulner inherent vulnerabilities underlying conceptual inherent vulnerabilities underlying all that. Uh, and, but I do think that most of the time it does, it is secure and it is uh, quite safe. Uh, in respect of tokens, however, uh, uh, I do think that the main vulnerability then, when looking from a regulator's perspective, is not so much the technology that's behind it, but very often who's using it and what is used for. I think that's the main concern of regulators. Um, and governments all around the world. It's not so much the technology that they're so concerned about. Um, and as well as uh, the general um, uh, savviness of the public in handling the tokens and, the and, and working within the realms of technology. Many people are just, just don't understand it very well, and especially retail, I do think. And, and that's where I think the regulators are really concerned about that. Thank you, Li Chuan. Uh, John, question for you on your background and something that I, I wanted to, to, to see and get your thoughts on is you certainly had an interesting background in, in work in the digital marketing space. Is that an influence to you as well as, as what you're looking at in digital art? And do you think those there's some symbiosis of that go forward? Yeah, absolutely. So I got interested in going into marketing and advertising because of digital art actually. So I learned to create generative art in college with a programming language called Processing, uh, which I thought was fascinating. And, you know, in, especially in the agency world, right, there's a ton of incredibly talented creatives who are really just, you know, treated as tradespeople, right? They're, you know, experts in their craft, but all they're doing is sort of, you know, making cool videos with branded logos floating around, right? And, it, and there was no opportunity for these people to monetize the art they're creating. And a lot of these people were, in my opinion, some of the best artists in the world. And so it was absolutely kind of part of the motivation and the story for Super Air is knowing a lot of these people and wanting to build a platform where they could, you know, could monetize the art directly and sort of be compensated for the value they're contributing 
as opposed to just kind of being relegated to the side as somebody who's technical and works on advertisements. Thanks. Lee Chuan, Singapore is a very interesting hub for crypto and blockchain related firms. What, what's the reasoning behind some of that? Is that have to do with policymakers? Does it have to do with the confluence of uh, entrepreneurs that have looked at you know that that part of the world and that your jurisdiction as as something that's unique? Yeah. So um, Singapore has always been very encouraging um, of um, startups as well as trying to build itself into a a place for technology, a place for um, the advancement of science. It's one of the key industries that the Singapore government has paid a lot of attention to. So that has been around since I think the early two thousands, um, and um, you know that's when first uh, one of the first people that they were bringing all the um, venture capitals and all that would invest into um, a startup in Singapore. They also started having government initiatives to encourage startups. Um, what uh, and they recognize that blockchain is and the distributed ledger technology is actually definitely a way uh, to go, um, and they have tried to encourage that. Um, and also have adopted and have been early adopters as well uh, for even government uh, agencies as well as um, you know government linked companies. Um, so um, they have uh, introduced, for instance, the MAS, the Monetary Authority of Singapore, the Central Bank of Singapore, uh, has introduced a fintech sandbox, uh, and many of these sandbox projects, which uh, are actually blockchain um, uh, 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 in in. Uh, mainly you has to do with the use of blockchain. This, in, for instance, um, blockchain uh, uh, security token exchanges, uh, the use of blockchain in um, insurance policies as well. Um, these were the things that they've been uh, uh, encouraging. At the same time, um, recognizing, of course, yet the, the uh, issues that uh, blockchain technology has, particularly in the space and the realm of um, tokens and uh, how the tokens were used for and the, the concerns would be of course uh, anti-money laundering as well as uh, terrorism financing they have been quite careful and calibrated in their approach and and try trying to introduce regulation that will first of course uh, mitigate any concerns that uh, these uh, risks would bring and more importantly give confidence to um, financial institutions and banks um, to be able to work with these startups who might be using blockchain, using blockchain technology or dealing with uh, crypto. Um, the key act that they have brought in is actually the Payment Services Act 2019. It was introduced in, uh, and passed by Parliament in 2019 and came into effect last year in January 2020. And the whole idea is to regulate intermediaries um, uh, of uh, payment services, but many of these actually uh, would uh, capture intermediaries uh, dealing with crypto, uh, with uh, cryptocurrencies, be it digital payment tokens, or um, um, electronic, uh, what they call e-money, electronic money, basically fiat representations of currency. And the whole idea is that with these licenses that are given out eventually, um, this will give a lot of the banks confidence to say, hey, I'm gonna be happy to deal with these um, uh, crypto companies, blockchain companies. Um, and uh, be assured that at least they have someone regulating and supervising them. And that's been uh, quite key, I think, in attracting many uh, legitimate, um, you know, um, very 
uh, traditional, uh, uh, very uh, big boys coming to Singapore and trying to get this license. This will give them that legitimacy to operate within one of the key, I think, uh, financial um, markets within uh, Singapore, uh, within uh, Asia, if not the world. So let's turn gears a little a bit and, and talk about the areas of potential interest for investment on this. We talked about a lot of different use cases today. Uh, you know, John, from your perspective, what what are those areas that you would you would tell people that are interested in in, um, in investing in this space to look at, either that are available today or or you see going down the the you know coming up over the horizon because it, it's it's certainly a space that evolves quite quickly. Yeah, I think one of the interesting trends that I'm seeing. You know, and my reference being more in the NFT space, so this is like gaming, art, you know, IP. Uh, but we're seeing kind of this, you know, specifically around gaming, kind of like this play to earn sort of these ecosystem. You know, like there are these econ- in-game economies, um, or you know, it's like these communities, right? These communities that have evolved online, uh, but we've never, you know been able to like really associate value with these communities. And I think people issuing these, you know, community tokens, uh, in-game economy tokens, right? This is, it's still such a nascent space. And I think we're kind of just scratching the surface of, you know, what it means for, you know, these communities to be able to issue these tokens, right? Like the governance token space, I think is extremely fascinating and, you know, it's an area where there's there's still a lot of skeptics, and so in my mind, that's kind of the information arbitrage, right? Like any, especially with digital art, right? We started, everyone said this is a ridiculous, absurd idea, and you know, turns out that's where the alpha is, right? So, um, you know, this is an area I'm super excited about, kind of this, uh, the play to earn, uh, community governance tokens. Um, I think are. You know, very interesting process. And when you say community, do you also mean maybe things like esports or online gaming, uh, video games of that nature, or other kinds of games that people play, like board games and things of like that that are more that are going electronic? Is that the, what you're meaning there? Yeah. So I mean, uh, you know, like esports, gaming, um, and you know, like I don't know if you you guys are familiar. There's these products like chat products like discord is probably the most popular however people are even using tokens as a way to gate certain like access to parts of the community and so it's like whether it's you know um, you know in this first for example super we just issued artist badges which are nfts um, so these can be used to allow artists to you know maybe they want to have a conversation with just people who've already collected their art, right? So it's kind of like, it's the merging of like access tokens, but then also kind of issuing, you know, governance tokens for the platforms themselves, which I think is really fascinating. But yeah, it spans, you know, across, you know, esports, kind of like online video games. Um, yeah. Uh, Lee Chuan, what are you seeing in, in your space that, that family offices and, and others should, should look at uh, if they're uh, examining this space? For opportunity. So, um, what has been uh, coming up um, and gaining a lot of popularity are actually security tokens. Um, in in Singapore, um, there has been uh, quite a number of security token exchanges that have been uh, licensed 
and available to accredited investors, basically high net worth individuals, as well as uh, institutional investors. And um, these actually uh, are your traditional securities, but in a, a token format. Um, and they offer basically the usual, um, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, economic uh, benefits that the securities have, but with by cutting out a lot of the um, first instance trading time, you know, cutting out a lot of the intermediaries. Uh, it could be one exchange that holds everything. It can be the custodian, it can be the broker dealer of the tokens, and that is meant to reduce costs and allow for hopefully greater bene uh, economic benefits and interest and rate returns uh, to the investor. That has been a growing space. Um, so more and, of like uh, a fintech play. Yes, definitely more of a fintech play. Yeah, and that has been we we've been involved in quite a number of these um, uh, in in Singapore, um, and we even have um, uh, major banks within this area introduce uh, uh, tokenized bonds, for instance. Uh, where the rates are slightly higher than the usual, you know, uh, uh, bonds that they would have offered uh, outside, and 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 it's easily tradable as well. Um, in, uh, uh, it doesn't have to be through an OTC; it can be directly on the exchange amongst the ex uh, um, the individuals. So that has been gaining a lot of popularity. Well, last question for for both of you: lessons learned. Uh, what what uh, what do you know today that you wish you had known? back when you got started in the space. Uh, Li Chuan, let's start with you. What, what, uh, what's your one lesson learned? <laughs> it, I mean, I wish I'd bought Bitcoin when it was below 10,000 USD. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> That's definitely something I wish I had done. Uh, but I mean, on a more serious note, um, um, I think that uh, my initial reaction to blockchain, to cryptocurrencies, were just like many other people, I think quite similar to what John has said right at the start, um, it, were, it seemed to be uh, linked with shady characters, shady dealings, people hiding things, you know, money laundering, things like that. But I do think that blockchain is, and that's because many of that probably with, due to the links with Bitcoin and that the kind of reputation it has. But I do think that blockchain distributed ledger technology cryptocurrency is a lot more than that. And there's a lot of potential uh, for uh, and use cases, and I think it has brought a whole new dimension to um, to uh, uh, to um, businesses, uh, to in all areas, whether it's small medium enterprises uh, and in different industries as well, whether it's in finance or whether in logistics or whether even in F and B, and we've seen all of those in test case in cases in Singapore, and definitely we do think. I wish obviously that I've been um, I put in a lot more attention to uh, working on uh, with projects uh, and, and maybe uh, looking working more with consultants on uh, on coming out with new use cases that would have been uh, been quite an interesting dimension to me it's just a lawyer right advising on the laws behind it which is always about one step behind john we've heard of non-buyers remorse and some areas around uh, you know understanding the technology better what, what's the one thing that you had wish you had known and uh, know today this is a tough question. Um, yeah, I think one thing that I've learned and just like, you know, might be interesting for some of the, I don't know, maybe like analysts or people who are part of these family offices. I think if you look, you know, if you think about Bitcoin, right, it kind of like grew out of this interesting internet subculture, uh, you know, the cypherpunks. I think we're still seeing a lot of the, you know, a lot of the value that's being created in the crypto space 
is coming from these communities that are using tools like Discord, organizing online, having discussions. And so I think, you know, it's really powerful to, you know, join these communities, interact with them. And I think there's a lot of opportunity. So over the coming, you know, five years, like I mentioned, these, you know, tokens that communities are issuing, this kind of like play to earn model that's coming through online gaming, like this is related to trends in esports, trends in crypto. Uh, the, you know, people who find the best alpha are the ones who are actually participating and engaging these communities. So I think, you know, the best way to, you know, to get involved is to, to join the communities, actually add value. And, uh, you know, the, I think it, it's a winning recipe. Well, thanks, John. And, and thank you, Lee Chuan, uh, for, for joining us today. And thanks to all of you for listening in. And if you'd like to get in touch with our guests or have any questions, send us an email to familyoffice at dentons.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation so inclined subscribe to the channel review us on apple Podcasts, follow us on spotify or keep in touch with us wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts as always sharing this episode is very much appreciated and probably the best way that you can show your support sign up for our newsletters learn more about our solutions and research in the family office space check out our website that is dentons.com forward slash family office well that's it Bye, everyone.